There is no artist who paints without their whole life coming into that painting, right? Same with every musician and every writer and every teacher for that matter. If you really dedicate yourself and you put in the time and you're smart with it, uh, you can really do anything with it. It's one of those eye-opening experiences for me in terms of um, what technology can do, but also it really pushed me to think like, what is technology? The work that they're doing while they're in school, in school walls, start to bleed into you know the rest of the community. All students come to the world prepared to learn. Providing um, these beautiful learning environments where everyone's together, trying to help everyone be the best they can be. Authentic learning experience, collegial relationships that, that are ultimately going to yield a positive school culture where, where learning flourishes. You are listening to the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. Here's your host, Josh Rapoon. Hey, everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. My name is Josh Rapoon. I'm your host. I'm here today with Lisa Morellis, Mark Hines, and Lee Fitzgerald. Welcome to you guys. Thanks Hi. for having us. Hey. So, Lisa, we're going to do a kind of a round of introductions here. So I'm going to start with you. You are the Director of District and School Leadership for PBL Works, which was formerly called the Buck Institute or the Buck Institute for Education. Um, and you're also self-identified as a first-gen Latina leader, which was awesome to read in your bio. So what is it that you do with PBL Works? Thanks, Josh. Um, what I do is I build leaders so that they have the mindsets, the skills, knowledge, the dispositions to be able to transform their schools and create the conditions so that um, teachers have time, space, and support to design and implement really good projects with students. Um, cool. So, yeah, that's what I do. And <laughs> so before this, Lisa, you were the Kauai Complex School Renewal Specialist. And just by way of context for our listeners, local, national, and global, that Hawaii is a single unified school district with 15 complexes, and one of those complexes is on the island of Kauai, and you were the complex school renewal specialist. What was that work? That work is amazing work. Um, so our job was to support, again, school leaders. I had middle and high school um, principals that I got to work with in all things related to their school in terms of renewing it, improving it, making it more innovative. Right. Um, I got to work with all the schools on helping them become future ready, which is a nationwide initiative and deeper learning is part of that. Um, implement the NGSS standards, support their career and technical education pathways, growth, building their academies, um, help their coaches, whatever they needed, whenever they needed. Wow, sounds like you <laughs> were all over there. the place. I loved it. You were <laughs> yeah. all over the place, yeah? Loved it. Right, exactly. <laughs> Mark, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Um, you are the director of Kupuho Academy at Mid-Pacific Institute. What does Kupuho Academy do, and what's your role? Kupuho Academy uh, is an um, instructional design workshop, basically, in which we help teachers look at uh, the lens of either inquiry or deeper learning practices in project-based learning or even Reggio Emilia all frameworks we use at Mid-Pacific as a means for student learning. And we help teachers find ways to design those experiences into their classroom practice when they go back. 
what we found interesting, and it's what I just heard Lisa talk about, is leadership is such an important component of that. So we're also finding, much like in that same work, that um, when leadership practices at the schools are aligned with that, it makes it much easier for teachers to bring back that work and to know that they have permission mm -hmm. to really think about how they can bring that kind of learning to their classroom more fully. In the bio biographical material that you sent to me in advance of today, um, you talked about what are progressive and research-based instructional assessment and leadership practices. Mm -hmm. What is that? What are you talking about there? So I guess it's, what it's not is easier to start with. So the schools that we all think of when we think of school are top-down, um, directive, um, using um, pre-made things like curriculum, like a textbook or worksheets as a means to drive learning, and faculty meetings that are compliance-driven, which it are imply that you need to be told what to do in order to be successful. Right. And when I think about progressive practices, we're doing it from the ground up. We're honoring that teachers as professionals know what works in their classrooms. We know that organizations work best when leadership is uh, a more level kind of um, organizational structure where everyone has input, buy-in, and voice. Right. And so when schools are mirroring those practices, the leadership practices are distributed, the classroom practices honor kids' voices, then we're getting closer to the idea of what progressive education can look like in that way and leadership practices right. as a result. Right. Got it. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Lee Fitzgerald, um, before we get to the professional stuff, <laughs> and you knew this was coming, Lee, because you and I have known each other for a long time, um, you noted, um, or I noted in your biographical material, that your parents were progressive in the sense that they didn't hover, they didn't check grades, they didn't put pressure on you, and they allowed much more than they disallowed, um, and that you seem to correlate living a disciplined life with that freedom that they gave to you early on. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. I, when I was sharing with Josh a little bit about my bio, I had said that when I was a school principal, people would often come into my office and say, like, oh, you know, you and your siblings, you've been very successful. What, what did your parents do to ensure success? And essentially my response was always like nothing. They didn't do anything. <laughs> they, they were busy modeling hard work for us and trusting us. I think that was the big piece and their maybe their need to trust us came from a place of necessity of that. They were essentially teen parents uh, attempting to right. work many jobs to provide for their young daughters and that they needed to trust in us to make good decisions. And my dad's mantra was always that we could never do anything worse than they had done. Um, and <laughs> so I think that set us, right. Right. Like, set us on a path of, of wanting to do well in their eyes and I think we were all goal oriented. So there was an immense amount of freedom around us and it made us maybe pick paths and strategic steps so that, that we felt a sense of security and accomplishment because we knew any, anything could be an option. Right. I'm actually the youngest of seven kids. And I recall very clearly the day that my mother ran out of parenting gas and that was with me um, as the youngest. And she just sort of handed the keys to me to the Volkswagen and said, don't drink and drive. And that was the last time that she really was involved in anything that I was doing other than cheering me on. 
Um, and that same sense of discipline, that sense of, of being of moving forward kind of came from that freedom, I think. Yeah. So it really resonated with me. So you do have quite a bio. It was a blast <laughs> reading through your bio. Um, can you take us through your time at Hawaii Technology Academy and then your trans your transition to Mid-Pacific Institute? Sure. So Wait, can you try that question? Yeah. Okay, let me go back. Did it jump? Okay. Just the microphone. So, Lee, can you briefly take us through your time at Hawaii Technology Academy and then your transition to Mid-Pacific Institute? Sure. So, starting in December of 2011, actually off of a call from Lisa here to my left, um, I took over as the executive director of Hawaii Technology Academy Public Charter School, which is the state's largest public charter school. It's a blended learning model, so the students spend about half their week um, mm -hmm. in a more formal school building and then half the week either in community-based learning or synchronous online learning or independent mm -hmm. learning, um, all with certified educators. And Seven campuses on four islands, right? Yes, yes, yeah. at, the at the time. At the time. Um, and mm -hmm. so, again, sort of of leading to what your initial question was to me, I went there seeing an amazing amount of opportunity and so many things that the school could be and what the learning and teaching could be for the teachers and the students and the parents who are heavily involved. Uh, but I, I am a very strategic systems thinker, organized right. person. Um, so for me, it was, all right, how do we create the foundational structure of this educational house that can then look really different and reflective of the community on each island and in a kindergarten through grade 12 setting where, of course, what's occurring in the third grade is going to be different than seventh right. and different than 11th, but I should understand that I'm within the same school. So really over almost an eight-year period of time, we got to, as I had a wonderful team there, reimagine what teaching and learning could be in this blended be. environment yeah. that there really still isn't a best of handbook for mm -hmm. how to yeah. how to do blended learning education so it was really exciting to to put mm -hmm. in place some of those structures and I had written in my bio to Josh that I I danced growing up and I've always sort of considered myself an educational choreographer and mm -hmm. I love thinking about how how and where things should play together at times and apart mm -hmm. and what are the costumes and what are the lights and right. how, how do the movements all work? And I think I've tried to carry that into my educational practice. And you know, about a year ago, I realized that we had sort of brought Hawaii Technology Academy through a complete design process. And it was time now to go through the second iteration and that it would be great for someone new to come in and, and take over and carry that journey forward. And conveniently, um, a lot of my education heroes <laughs> are, are working at Mid-Pacific Institute and a position opened there. Um, to, to really run all aspects of the academic program from student learning to adult learning to right. summer to international. And the program needs some foundational grounding so that we can can build, build upon the amazing work that's already occurring there. So it seemed like a natural fit to come in and, and help that school and everyone who's already there evolve to the next level. Awesome. Thank you, Lee. So um, this is part two of our conversation. Um, so Mark, um, I'm going to ask, ask the same question of all three of you, by the way. I'm going to start with you. So Mark, what's your philosophy of education? That's a really good question. I, I, at the core, and I think what it, it's what drives me as an educator and, and as someone who supports other teachers, 
is that education for students should start by understanding that all students come to the world prepared to learn. They don't have to be taught to learn. And that the goal of education should be to bring out in them the talents, um, follow through on the passions that they have. And and so to it, so it engenders in them a sense of agency that they are in control of their lives, know what they're good at, know what they need to work on, and that as uh, being able to realize that, that that allows them to be citizens that uh, can fulfill a life of of um, of accomplishment by their terms, the things that they're interested in and can make a difference in. Right. So if, if education is set up and schools are set up to do that, then they'll grow into that naturally and it will take care of itself. Right. Wow. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Lisa, what is your philosophy of education? It's not surprising that it's really similar to Mark's. <laughs> when he was talking, I was cracking up because I, I started right away thinking. But um, for me, it's about... Um, we're born perfect. We're all we need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like these bundles of love, and we're, we're naturally curious. We ask a million questions. We want to know how the world works. That's just who we are. And I think um, what I saw over and over in education is that um, kids figure out pretty quickly that once they get to school, um, it's no longer them asking questions. It's um, adults asking questions, and there's usually only one right answer. Right. And we sort of... Um, we sort of systemically um, breed out their curiosity. We, we, we diminish their curiosity. Um, so for me, school is a place where, you know, my philosophy is that um, we need to keep that curiosity alive. Right. And we need to um, make time and space for questions and, um, and help sort of the child or, or the student, not just the child, um, uncover Mm. Like what they're, tr- it's, it's not covered, it's uncovering who they really were meant to be. Mm. Um, and through inquiry and through asking good questions, but also exposing them to experiences they might not have had. Right. Um, helping them figure out what their passions, their interests, their skills, their talents, and helping them grow the things, you know, that maybe they not wouldn't have gone to naturally. Right. But exposing them to that and then providing... Um, these beautiful learning environments where everyone's together trying to help everyone be the best they can be right. um, for the world, right. right? Not for the communities, for the world, for their families, right? So everyone feels whole. Right. So I think my in my in my philosophy. educational experience, that's exactly what happened, but it didn't happen in school. Yeah, it happened me. outside of school. And I wish it had happened in school. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Lee, your philosophy mm-hmm. of education. I think sort of, Yes. <laughs> Building off of what Lisa and Mark said, I think my philosophy has always been essentially to lead and learn through love. And when we like when we really get to know each other as as colleagues, as teachers to students, students to students, teachers to parents, like that's that's when the most amazing engagement and learning can happen. And when I first went to HTA, I think a lot of people were like, wow, if you don't see everybody every day, how how does that work? Like, how do the teachers really know the kids? How do you really know your teachers? And I, I would argue like the exact opposite happens of you have such limited time that you're 
not even forced, you want to make sure that you're engaging as much as possible. And I loved there that because we didn't have enough space and whenever you had meetings, it would often be car rides going somewhere. You needed to go to a coffee shop or you needed to do something different. And so then those like the natural bounds of I'm in this formal place are taken away and right. it lets you have more authentic conversations because I'm, I'm going to have a far better relationship with my colleagues or the teachers I work with if I know what's going on in their lives and they know what's going on in mine, just the same way we want our teachers to to know that with our students, then we know what drives us, what we're passionate about, how to connect with one another, and we can right. build those authentic learning experience, collegial relationships that, that are ultimately going to yield a positive school culture where, where learning flourishes. Right. Awesome. Thank you, Lee. Hey, everybody, stay with us. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back to talk with Mark and Lisa and Lee about their work at PBL Works and at Kupuhu Academy and lots of other stuff. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Tyler Kern from Market Scale. We're excited at the arrival of a new podcast series out of Hawaii titled What School Could Be in Hawaii. MarketScale is thrilled to be partnering with Josh Rapoon on this project and can't wait to hear the insight and thought leadership he brings to EdTech. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can hear it and others over at MarketScale.com. You click on Industries at the top of the page and then scroll down to EdTech. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. We're back with Mark and Lisa and Lee. Um, so... I want to talk to the three of you maybe in a little bit more of an open conversation now about what I'm perceiving as a really significant spike in demand for project-based, problem-based, challenge-based, place-based, culture-based, inquiry-based teaching and learning. And I'd love to get your thoughts about why you think this is happening at this particular point here in 2019. Mark, let's start with you. Actually, it's interesting. That question, um, there's a video on YouTube called uh, Leadership Lessons from the Dancing Guy. I don't know if oh, you've ever seen it. I have There's this guy dancing at a concert, and he looks like a fool dancing by himself. Oh, yeah. And then a couple of people jump in, yeah. and all of a sudden everyone says, hey, that actually looks kind of fun. And wow. then by the end of the short video, uh, you've got hundreds of people dancing. Right. And it's, it's the lesson about leadership is not it's not the first person that stands up. It's the early adopters. It's the people that come in and make it look fun. And I think this, the thing that's happening in the movement around deeper learning practices in Hawaii in particular is it's a, it's a small enough community that we all know each other. We see each other passing through the aisles at conferences and in shopping malls. And so we see someone getting up and dancing and people realize mm. I, maybe that's something that's okay. It's time for me to jump up and dance a little bit. Right. So I think that's part of it. I think that you're referencing Derek Sivers' mm -hmm. TED Talk called How to Start a Movement. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and yes. he talks, yes. he talks about yeah. the lone nut, right? The lone nut. And the, the lone yeah. nut is not the real leader. It's the person who steps up to dance with the lone nut and then the people after that who are actually the leaders in that case. That's awesome, Mark. Yeah. What, Lee and Lisa, what are your thoughts about this spike in demand? Um, 
So I've said before, I think there's never been a more exciting time to work in education in Hawaii in particular, because as, right. as Mark just referenced, we do have this amazing collaborative community. And it's something you know, Mark, Lisa and I have worked together for about 13 years, I think, since the original Schools of the Future grant and movement here in the state. And as the momentum has built, I think we've seen a culture from the top level in the right. state shift in which the state superintendent, the head of the independent schools, the head of the charter, charter commission, commission, the right. Catholic schools are all saying to their teachers and to their school leaders within their schools, right. yes, go forward, take risks, fail forward, model for your teachers and for your students, those things that we've read about or that we're hearing about. So not only did we have those early adopters, but perhaps those people who were right on the edge but were a little nervous to take this step yeah. now have the green light. And they also have mod people who have modeled it ahead of them. And now through the work of Kupaho and through PBL Works and, and many other entities in the state, there's also the support and resources here mm -hmm. in mm, a yeah. place that sometimes is lacking of resources because right. we are... 3,000 miles from the mainland and far from a lot of conferences. And so having mm -hmm. more resources, more support, and and just an embracing of it's okay to fail forward and right. just try what comes next. And Lisa, what, what we've also noticed at the same time is over the growth of our Schools of the Future conference from a very small conference to one that actually sees close to 2,000 people, that we've seen um, an equal spike, if you will, in the supply mm -hmm. of the kinds of... Um, at least conference-style, standalone, mm -hmm. um, innovative, creative, imaginative types of delivery of great professional development. And from your perch at PBL Works and also your former perch um, on Kauai and the Complex School Renewal, you're seeing that happening. Yeah, definitely. I mean, just building on kind of what they said, I think um, for a lot of years, so it's important to know that the groundwork has been being laid for a long time. Yeah. I would actually even go back to the... Um, the Hawaiian Focus Charter School movement, mm. um, and moving into place-based learning and community-based learning that some of them are the, really the real heroes. Like when you really think about Hawaiian epistemology and um, how we learn um, in Hawaii, learning by doing, right. and um, that there's a lot of seeds that have been planted from that movement and then from the Schools of the Future movement, and, um, and then just sort of this kind of gentle pressure on the system, right. I think, but at the same time building capacity and key people and connecting people across different types of networks um, to be able to share ideas, share practices, start to ask each other the hard questions about what school could be like, how do we rethink professional development, the unconference movement to me, yeah, um, that's starting a PISTI right? in 2010 and mm -hmm. starting to rethink like how we can do PD, that's permeated into, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I think um, it's all of those things interplaying. And I think now we're seeing sort of, there was all this groundwork being laid, and now it's like, okay, let's do this. I mean, we've had, like, such an increase in demand. It's, I, I think it's a 140% increase in demand mm -hmm. for project-based learning workshops from our perspective at mm -hmm. PBL Works and, and a demand for leaders um, with the Hawaii Innovative Leader Network. And so we've, we've just seen it, and I know Mark has seen it in Kupuho. Yeah. The interest is there. People are ready. There's also what we talked about, permission. Right. Mm -hmm. Permission to do it. And that's coming from a lot of different levels. And that is really helping to change the game. That's what everybody. I wanted to ask you about, Mark, is, <laughs> is this 
this notion that for a very long time you went somewhere and got some PD. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sir Ken Robinson talks about you being watered as a plant, and then when you come back to your school, you die because mm-hmm. you run out of water. And that what we're envisioning, what you guys are envisioning, is something very, very different, which is a sort of, I hate to use the word army because it's militaristic, but it's like an army of capacity builders, each person unto themselves, a professional development sort of entity that can help other people transform their practices as well. And you're seeing that through your work at Kupuho. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think all three of us agree that the most powerful means of learning aren't top down, but it's through the collegial connections you have. Right. We're all believers and, and researchers on professional learning networks and communities of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the best models of how teachers and leaders grow um, through HILM, which is one of the efforts, isn't by someone telling someone how to do it, mm-hmm. much like we expect in a project-based classroom, mm-hmm. but it's in the process of doing it and doing it collaboratively that knowledge gets constructed, that real learning happens and commitment to the work right. sticks because you're accountable to your peers. Right. So you're, it's, again, it's not a compliance thing. It's we have norms and an agreement. We've established a culture around learning professionally and moving ourselves forward collectively. And so that's shifted, I think, in a big way in, in the in the time that we've been doing this work. And you have a you have a long background in ed tech like using the term, you know, broadly. Right. And that, that we're in a time now, right, where we where educational technology has created platforms that make it even more possible for people to capacity build with each other. Right. And what are those ways? Like, give give us some specific examples of technologies that are facilitating that peer-to-peer capacity building. You know, so I'm going to paint it from a classroom teacher's perspective. Okay. In the early days of technology, the goal for every school was to ban devices because right. kids came with them yeah. and the adults didn't know how to use them. And so we saw technology as an intrusion. And what's happened is we've realized that technology... Um, allows everything that we think best about the way humans learn. It's collaborative by nature. People share. It allows for a variety of means of 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 telling stories, of learning. Um, it's multimedia in the most progressive way. Um, so it addresses all kinds of learning styles. Right. And it can be taken at any level. So in 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 early childhood, it serves a purpose for auditory, for visual, right. in in creation and construction. So in, in the best ways in which we know we can personalize and differentiate learning, technology supports it. It's why kids grabbed onto it before adults did. But I think now in education, we see it as the tools that support the most powerful kinds of learning we know exist. Right. Hey, everybody, stay with us. We're going to be back in a second, and I'm going to ask Lee Fitzgerald to lead us into a different discussion about assessments. We'll be right back. Within a generation of 25 years, Kamehameha Schools sees a thriving Lahui where our learners achieve post-secondary and educational success. To this end, Kamehameha Schools is proud to share Halau Inana Makapa'akea, an innovation and collaboration space where Native Hawaiian learners converge as a new generation of OEV leaders, innovators, indigipreneurs, and entrepreneurs. The Halau will host and curate various programs, events, and activities that foster OEV leadership development, creative thinking, and problem-solving, innovation, prototyping, and incubation. Hey, everybody, we're back. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, and we're here with Mark Hines, Lee Fitzgerald, and Lisa Morales. 
Lee, I want to shift the conversation just slightly, but stay along the same track, um, which is assessments. Let's talk about assessments. So I want to put it, I want to ask it this way, not, I I don't want to get into the weeds about assessments, but what I want to talk about at the more meta level is what conversations must we have here in Hawaii, public, private, and charter, but also nationally and also globally to, to go through or to help, help us all together facilitate that shift towards what we're calling more authentic assessments. Does that make sense? Like, what are the conversations that we have to have? I think I would open with that the most important part is having the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so to sort of bring the through line from what Mark was just discussing, one of perhaps the most collaborative aspects of things that are going on in the state right now is that people at every level, teachers, building administrators, higher level state administrators are all engaged in, even if it's not the exact same conversation, at least tangential conversations about assessment for deeper learning here in this state, um, uh, culturally relevant assessment practices, and how we can redefine the standards of how we can define how we assess students that make sense in the context of their learning, knowing that right. many different schools have their own mission and vision and core values, and how are we then building opportunities for students to show their learning in mm-hmm. relation to the specific goals of be it that school or that class or a personalized plan that they have, and then back to the professional development piece, then equip teachers with the resources and tools and knowledge and skills that they need to feel confident guiding students along that path, which then goes in tandem with also assisting parents who learned in a very different system to trust in the professional expertise of their school leaders and teachers, and also to trust in the questions and inquiry of their the students themselves. Right. Of you know, I have a four year old at home who I believe is a brilliant creature, and she is, and she's showing me her learning every single day, and it isn't yeah. on some sort of formulaic report card. She's four. It's from something awesome she draws or a question that she asks, mm-hmm. and I'm we don't question it of a preschooler yet. Somehow we do question it right, of, when they get older. A third, seventh, or 11th grader. So we wanted to bring it back. So Lisa and Mark, it sounds to me, based on what Lee's saying, is that there's a certain release happening, that instead of a very tightly held conversation with only a few people, which has been traditional in the past, around assessments, that the conversation is being released to everyone to have that conversation. Lisa, is that... Is that a fair yeah. evaluation? Yeah, I mean, it's all about how do we know what they know? <laughs> and right. um, and can we have multiple ways of knowing what they know? Um, so instead of relying on that one traditional sort of these standardized tests, which I would argue um, we need standards. Right. We also need assessments that are aligned not just to standards, but also to how we teach, the way we teach, the, co- the curriculum instruction, right? right. And, um, and so I, I think, yeah, we're opening that up. I mean, at the state level... Um, I, I'm pretty sure the state's applying for an innovative assessment um, grant from the feds. Right. Um, we're helping them build out an evidence framework. Um, the culturally relevant assessment project is looking at how do we mm-hmm. collect evidence of student learning. Mm-hmm. So, so not just because f- there's three different levels, right? There's sort of this um, classroom level of right. data. Right. There's a school level. And then there's sort of the system level. And the, those 
all we tend we were using like one measure to kind of assess all three levels of that but different types of data are good to tell us about the health of learning of a system or a school or a classroom or a student. And we right. have to kind of rethink that altogether. Right. Mm -hmm. Mark, I did a series of screenings of most likely to succeed for business people. Mm -hmm. um, and the activity that I did afterward was around building a 21st century transcript. Mm -hmm. um, and it was pretty wild and crazy because what these business people came up with was, you know, the kinds of things that they're looking for in young people who are coming into their businesses and want to work for them. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like the conversation's being opened up to many constituencies and stakeholders. In fact, it's an interesting, uh, Lisa Lee and I are, are working with 150 school leaders in, on Wednesday uh, talking about assessment practices, but one of the things we'll be talking about is a movement called Share Your Learning, mm -hmm. which is a technology-enabled way of saying the things that used to happen inside classroom walls that no one would see, opening that up, and schools opening up for a more visible view, view of what learning looks like in classrooms, in professional development, in organizational work. And so our work with those leaders in a few days and the work that I think is going to continue is the more we open up making learning visible, yeah. the more we as a community can start to really get our heads around what assessment looks like because we're seeing the products of learning more fully through right. the window that's been provided. Right. Mm -hmm. So this time has gone really fast mm -hmm. and we're already coming towards the end of this episode. So I want to accomplish two things here at the end. This next part here is going to be, I, I want to keep it relatively brief. So your answers, I need your answers to be relatively brief. But I want to, I always want to be honest with all the people who are listening to this podcast and that we're not coming across as Pollyanna or that we're affirmative or that we're, we're fanboys and girls or anything like that. So the question I want to ask you, each of you in a row, is, is what's the most difficult conversation that we have to have as we go forward. And part of the reason why I'm asking this is because of a book that was recommended to me by Buffy Cushman Pates, who's the founder of Seeks, um, called Difficult Conversations. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll start with you, Lee, just briefly. What's the hardest, nastiest, gnarliest conversation that we gotta have as we go forward? I, I, I would say that it's leaning against or pushing against those, be it educators, and by that I mean classroom teachers or other people who work in education, registrars, business managers, uh, records officials, of that it's, we can't support the future of learning if we keep doing things the way that they used to be done. Right. We all live in what is now essentially the year 2020, and we all need to we all need to evolve. The the support structures of the system uh, right. yeah. have to evolve alongside the mm. progressive teaching and learning practices, or else ultimately we're not going to be able to set our students up for success. That's a difficult conversation. Yeah. Lisa, what for you, what's the most difficult uh, for me gnarly hard conversation? For me it's the equity question. Mm. Um, okay. it's uh, Martin Haberman calls it the pedagogy of poverty. Yeah. Pedagogy of poverty is um, worksheets, drill and kill, deficit-based. If a student doesn't demonstrate these skills, they need to go do it again in an RTI setting. It's the conversation about confronting that and yeah. that um, students um, like aren't allowed 
to have deeper learning experiences and like until they can mm. demonstrate a certain set of skills. Yeah. And I want to push back hard against that mm. and say, um, and I do do this. And these are hard conversations. I just had one 10 days ago with a school leader, a very respected school leader, right. um, about um, st- the learning happens because kids are engaged and interested in answering interesting questions. Right. And they will come to it. They don't need to be like ready for deeper learning. Yeah. Um, so that's the hard conversation there. That's awesome. Thanks, me. Lisa. Mm-hmm. Mark, what's the hard, gnarly conversation that we have to have going forward? You know, it, it kind of ties to both what Lisa and Lee mm-hmm. said, but the word that came to my mind is a culture of trust. Mm-hmm. I think we have, in, in times of turbulent, you know, whitewater environment, mm-hmm. Peter Vale talks about that, yeah. um, this idea that we're in a state of constant movement right now, that if organizationally in education and the communities that work with them, if there isn't trust um, built in so that the work of people um, allows permission for the work to move, then it's easy to, without trust, you go back to the things that you know and you're unable to shift. And so building uh, trust, a culture of trust in organizations is critical um, because without it, it's impossible to really drive change. Right. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Do you guys mind if I chime in on this? Can I answer my own question here? We were okay. hoping to ask you yeah, questions during this yeah, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, wow, thank you. I just It gives me goosebumps here thinking I can actually answer my own question. Um, here's here's the, the conversation that I'm really worried about that I think is particularly gnarly. I think that we're waking up to the idea that possibly college is doing damage to our kids rather than rather than doing the thing that we thought it has been doing all along, which is setting them up for success, for financial success, for lifelong success. I think that there's mounting evidence that college is an, a terribly anxiety-producing um, experience that doesn't yield the results that we have been claiming it does. And I feel like our country and maybe even the world has to have that conversation around higher ed. Um, and I hope to have a guest on in the future to dig into that a little bit more mm-hmm. from the higher ed community. Awesome. So we're going to transition into the last part here. This podcast is going to be a little longer than the others. Um, so I, I want to finish with uh, the same question that I ask everybody on this podcast, which is what school could be. But I want to do it a little bit differently with you guys. Um, I, want to, I want to do it as sort of like this. So it's like a playlist. And I'll go around between to, to the three of you. I want to do it this way, that I would say school could be blank. So school could be X and that you will fill in the blank by giving me some specific example to, of something that you've seen that illustrates what school could be. So I'll give you, I'll give you an example um, that if you were to ask me, Josh, what could school be? Um, fill in that blank. I would say it could be the young history teacher struggling to incorporate Socratic seminar into European, U.S., and Hawaiian history because he wants to expand the walls of his classroom out into the world. That's what school could be to me. You get got the where we're going with that? Mark, I'll start with you. School could be X blank. School could be like kindergarten all the time where students' innate curiosity and excitement about learning as they grow and develop is not limited but amplified by continuing to honor their enthusiasm and talents. And so 
like a garden that grows and we don't stop the flowers from spreading. Yeah. We let that nurture and keep going as they go from early childhood to adulthood. Fabulous. Thank you, Mark. Lee, school could be... School could be a place where everybody within the school, the students, the teachers, the parents, the administrators, really felt like they could speak freely and be honest and open in their own authentic selves without having to play the role that they have learned over time that they are supposed to play. Right. And doors would be open if, if you're in a school where doors exist and desks are not in offices, maybe desks don't exist, but it's everyone is there collaboratively working and engaged together, still playing some sort of role, but roles yep. very different than those that we've traditionally known. Right. Thank you, Lee. Lisa, and finally, school I mean, could be... I mean, I just want to say love. Mm -hmm. um, manifested in a million different ways. Um, and some of the ways is second graders showing um, our county recycling waste management leaders about the system that they developed at their school. It could be um, serving Kahlo for the first time at lunch. Right. It could be um, going focus charter school leaders working together to think about culturally relevant assessment. I mean, it's, it's a lot of things, um, but I think it all needs to be grounded in, um, in love. Um, so that's what school could be to me. That's fabulous. Thank you very much. Mark Hines of Kupuho Academy at Mid-Pacific, Lee Fitzgerald at Mid-Pacific, and Lisa Morales of PBL Works. It's been an honor having you guys today. Thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Coming up next on the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast, Kay Beach, founder of the UMI Project. Find the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher, as well as at mltsinhawaii.com. Join the ongoing conversation across social media. Look for Most Likely to Succeed in Hawaii on Facebook, at MLTS in Hawaii on Instagram, and at MLTS in Hawaii on Twitter. Tag your posts with hashtag what school could be, hashtag deeper learning, hashtag edchat, and hashtag education. We want to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to mltsinhawaii at gmail.com or direct message us on Twitter at mltsinhawaii. Our next interviews will be recorded on Saturday, October 26th, starting at 9 a.m. Hawaii time. You can join us in the studio through the magic of Facebook Live. Find us at the most likely to succeed in Hawaii Facebook page. Video of each interview will also be available on demand on YouTube. Look for what school could be in Hawaii playlist on our most likely to succeed in Hawaii channel. If you love this podcast series, we would really appreciate a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help us reach a wider audience of innovative educators. And please feel free to share this series with colleagues, friends, and family. Your host is Josh Rapun. Our technical producer and podcast consultant is Ryan Ozawa. Post-production is by Hawk Media Productions, the digital media program at Kealakehe Intermediate School.
The editor for this episode was Marlon Utrera, under management from student director May Kanata, all under the guidance of media director Matthew Williams. Special thanks to photo and video contributor for our October episodes, Matthew Tong, a media and English teacher at Stevenson's Intermediate School. And a huge shout out to Ted Dintersmith, author of the book, What School Could Be, an education change agent. Now, off to your next education adventure. Class dismissed. Yeah.